0: The Bible passage for this morning is from John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Um, I will be reading a slightly different version than the version that is in your pew Bible, but you can find that on page 1628, if you would like to read that there. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am judging no one. But if I do judge, my judgments are true, because I am not alone, but instead I am the sent one of my Father. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. "'You are of this world. I am not of this world. "'I told you that you would die in your sins. "'If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, "'you will indeed die in your sins.' "'Who are you?' they asked. "'Just what I have been claiming all along,' Jesus replied. "'I have much to say and to judge concerning you. "'But he who sent me is true, "'and what I have heard from him I tell the world.' "'They did not understand that he was telling them about his father.' So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him.
1: Thanks, Chair. I was really looking forward... Um, to us, going through John, this is one of the hardest books because everything runs together in every passage all the way through. So this whole section about Jesus being the light of the world and being the water of life runs through like four different chapters. And there's like eight other themes running through it. And I feel like somebody who's not taking their medication in a little room with like red yarn running everywhere. And I'm trying to weave it into some kind of rope. And it just, it feels impossible. Um, uh, One of the, the cool providences Um, and it didn't come through planning, otherwise you'd have to assume that I somehow got Devin conveniently sick last week, is that um, this week lines up exactly with the actual date for the Festival of Booths. The Festival of Booths started three days ago and will go on for five more days. This is Sukkoth, right? This, the festival. It's um, in the time of Jesus, it was the most populated, most exciting. It was the, the holiday that might not have been spiritually the most important, but everybody thought was the most fun. And so the most people came to it, and it was the biggest deal by far in Israel. Now, partly during the week, one of the things that they would do is all the priests, and then in this huge procession from the temple, they would go down to what was called the Gihon, um, or the 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 Pool of Siloam, which was fed from the Gihon Spring. One of the reasons why Jerusalem was the last city to get conquered in that region from the Jebusites was because they could um, withstand sieges indefinitely, because out of the rock came this spring— and basically unlimited amount of water, which could keep everybody in the city in the middle of the desert with plenty of water indefinitely. And so you could never starve out Jerusalem. In fact, it was only because some of David's super daring men actually swam in through the spring to get inside the city to open the gates so that they could take over the city that the the city was ever taken, right? And so in the parlance of, of Judaism, right, because the spring was a gift from the rock itself. It was from God, and it was the living water because it flowed as a gift like a spring, graciously, down under the city into this pool of Siloam, and everybody could go there and get the water. So all the priests, everybody come down and they'd they'd have a golden chalice, and they'd scoop up water, and they'd play music, go all the way back up to the temple, and they'd pour it out before God. Because in Sukkoth, one of the things that they were remembering was, Sukkoth means booth or temporary shelter, right? So the whole week, the Jewish people would get together and they'd make these temporary shelters and they'd live in them because they were supposed to remember that God had spoken and shown himself in the desert when he brought them out of Egypt, right? And they lived in temporary booths and they lived in the desert. And in the desert, you need two things. There's no place as dry as the desert and there's no place as dark as the desert, right? And so to keep them alive and to help them, God gave them water out of the rock and he was always over the, the tent, his booth amidst all of his people in their temporary shelters as a pillar of fire. He was the light in the desert, and he was the water from the rock. And so they lived in booths. They were supposed to read the Bible out loud every third year because God showed himself in their wanderings, and he spoke to them in his word. And they were supposed to remember both of them. And so they had come up with these two rituals because isn't it fun to come up with rituals that aren't in the Bible to make the Bible more fun? And so, but they were kind of fitting, right? One was celebrating God's gift of the water of life, and the other was celebrating God's gift of light. And so they would go down here, and they would march all the way down to the spring, and then they would march all the way back up to the temple, and this, uh, this is about where the spring, the Gihon spring is. So this was the old city of the Jebusites right here, and so they had plenty of water. When that was taken over, this became the city of David. The temple was then built here. This is the threshing floor that David purchased at the end of his reign to stop the plague, and that became the place where God was worshiped, right? And then all the way down here, the water would flow down this hill into the pool of Siloam, right? Because water flows downhill. And then the people would walk back uphill, chanting and cheering back into the temple, and they'd put it out before God. And in the Mishnah, the Jewish leaders said, you have never seen joy until you have seen this parade. Because they were celebrating the past, what God had done, and they were remembering it, but they were also celebrating the present because Sukkoth comes at harvest. And if they'd have enough water as a gift from God from the sky that year— Then they had a great harvest, and they were going to live. The water of life had brought fertility in the desert, and they were going to live, right? And so they poured it out before God, because God is the one who gives life, and water represents that, especially in the desert, right? But that same night, the last day of the feast, there was this other big, big deal where— and so Jesus then, it says, he he taught again, and he was in what's called the court of the women. The reason we know this is because almost all the place—see all these little boxes here? Those are all places where you can give money. All the places to give money were in the court of the women because the court of the women was the coolest place in the temple. Not because it was all women there—that would be a little bit too ladies, man move for Jesus— but because this is the place where everybody could be. This was called the court of the women not because it was only women, but it was as far as women were allowed to go in the temple. So this is the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't come in here. Only Jewish women and Jewish men could come in here, and only Jewish men could go in here, and only Jewish priests could go in here. Does that make sense? And once a year, one Jewish priest could go in the Holy Place, right? So in, in this place is where everybody gathered for this huge festival on the last night, in which they brought out—sorry, I keep doing this bad— they brought out these huge stands that they would put in the Court of the Women, and they had these big, like, almost like barrel-like leaves on the top of them, and they would fill them with olive oil, and they would set them on fire. And the fire would burn all night long, and people would dance all night long, And they would wave torches around, and they would juggle fire torches, and they would sing, and this was the biggest party in Israel, okay? And so if you ever go camping with your children, don't tell your children not to play with fire, right? It's part of the Jewish history that we receive as Christians (laughs) that at least once a year you have like a uh, full—they played with fire in the church, you understand? Like they're literally in the temple. Everybody gets to play with fire. You have to learn how to do it properly, right? And so it was this huge celebration. So as the sun started to go down, after they had done the water thing, and Jesus said, I am the water of life, he shows up in the court of the women, and he says, I am the light of the world. And everybody knows it's the festival of booths. So everybody knows this points back to wandering in the desert in the darkness with nothing but stars, and blackness, and God was with his people in the worst time of their life, before they had a land of their own, he was the pillar of fire. He was the light of the world in the darkness, and that light could be followed. The the point here is, Jesus hearkening back to this is, he's not just the light that puts aside ignorance. He, He is that. He's not only the light additionally that puts aside wickedness. He's also the light that flags the way forward to all of God's life and promises. He is the light of Life, it says. Right? So he's the light that pushes back the ignorance that shields sin, the wickedness, or that is the darkness that hides sin, but also the bewilderment of where on earth we're supposed to go. He is the light guiding the way through the darkness, right? And so in that context, when all of Jerusalem is ablaze, everybody's favorite party— He's like, I am this. I am the light of the world. Right? so the main point we should take from the passage today is not going to be super creative. It is, Jesus is the light of the world. Okay, so um, let's dig into that a little bit, right? Okay, so what does that mean, right? And the first thing that it means is that Jesus is himself the foundation of truth and meaning, right? The minute Jesus says, I am the light of the world, first of all, remember in John's gospel that word world doesn't just mean creation. It means creation living unconscious of its creator, not recognizing him, and acting as though he doesn't exist. Remember John 1 where it says, he came to his own, that is the creation, and they did not recognize him, right? And so Jesus is the light of not just creation, but of the world who is living in darkness, right? And then um, part of the issue here is the way Jesus is the life is a way that's very uncomfortable. And the the way this comes out in his discussion with these particular Jewish leaders is that when he says he's the light of the world, what is the status of that statement? Like anybody could say that. David could say that. I'm the light of the world. What are we supposed to do with that? Like how — right? And so what they say to him is they say, listen, because you are saying this on your behalf, right, your testimony isn't — the word they use is true, okay? Now in a lot of your NIV translations that you have in the pew that you might have, it might say valid, okay? So here's the problem with translation, okay? There's a statement in the English departments that translation is treason, right? Because every time you make a translation, you have to decide, do I say what this word means very specifically in its context? Or do I keep this word the same in the translation if the same word is used a bunch of times? And you can't do both. You have to make a choice. So what most modern translators have done is they've taken the word aletheia, or truth, and they have translated it different ways in this passage. So you don't see that it's the word that's happening all the way through. What that obscures is, is that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what he's saying is, I am the truth. Which he will explicitly say later when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But light in this context means truth because they say, listen, you're testifying for yourself. What you're saying isn't, most translations now say, valid. It's the word truth. It's not true. Of course, see, the game is being played here. What do you mean by truth in this context? And the thing that's interesting about this is in this passage, truth will, that word truth will mean at least three different things. Right? Here it basically is an excuse to say that what Jesus is saying is invalid, even though they have no idea whether it's invalid or not, and it's actually true. You see, if somebody tells you something, you're like, well, I can't believe you, I can't believe your testimony, well, okay, you can make that choice. It doesn't make you right. What partly matters is the qualifications of the person saying the thing. Right? And what Jesus is claiming is he's saying, look, I have have established my right to say this. To give this testimony and for it to be believed— completely. In chapter 7, he's like, he's like, what is, what is a, quote, man of truth, right? Somebody who does what is right for its own sake, isn't trying to bring glory and honor to himself, but actually does the will of the person who sends it, who's not wrapped up in what he's doing, but tells the truth, does what is right, and does what he's there to do, and doesn't get personally wrapped up in, how is this going to go for me, right? You have to have somebody of character before you can even start to believe somebody. And then secondly, the person has to know what they're talking about. If somebody says, listen, if we go to X place, here's what it's going to be like. One of the first questions you're going to ask is, have you been there? Have you done this? Right? When I used to lead wilderness trips, the kids would be like, I don't know what it's going to be like sleeping out in the dark and there's going to be bears. I was like, listen, I have done this like 47 weeks in a row. Okay? It's going to be fine. And they believed me because I had experience. I was from the wilderness. So they thought I could take them to the wilderness right? The issue with Jesus is, is like, these guys are like, look, you can't tell us this. What do you know? And he's like, listen, here's the problem. I do know what I'm talking about, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, and this is a problem. Because because you don't have any idea what you're talking about, you think, I don't know what I'm talking about, and the problem is the reverse, okay? You can think of it this way. C.S. Lewis said one time in um, Mere Christianity, he said, I don't believe in Christian faith just because— um, In it, I see God, but that through it, I can see everything else. Right? There's, it's a little weird, right, if you're in a dark place and somebody turns on a light. When the things in that place criticize the light. They can only see the light because it's the light. Everything they see is by the light. The light is the thing that's actually illuminating and revealing everything. The stuff that's getting revealed might not like it. A la John 3, right? Nobody likes being exposed. And so you can turn and criticize the light. But the thing is, is that like you're still plainly seen and the light is still the light. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell these people. He's like, listen, the way you want to receive this information is through reason and investigation, what we call science, so that you can be partially in control of what you come to believe. Right? If I told you something that was just rooted in reason, you could think through it with me, and then you could decide whether or not you agreed with my line of reasoning. Right? You wouldn't have to believe me. You could just agree with me. Right? And so I would show my work and either I succeeded or failed. Or scientifically, if it's something that I could just prove, like water is made of these chemicals or it'll boil at this temperature, then I can show you. I can boil it at that temperature. And if it boils, you go, oh look, that's interesting. It happens. In both cases, you're an equal authority with me. Right? And you're not accepting my authority. You're observing the thing itself. He's like, the problem is, is that the most important things in human existence are not functioning that way because your capacity for reason and your capacity for observation have been compromised by what you do and don't want to believe as human beings. And because of that, you're actually not very good at doing either reasoning or investigating, and there are some things we just don't learn that way. Like moral propositions, for example. Either you believe them or you don't. And if you have them wrong, what you need is somebody to tell you that they're wrong. You go to your marriage mentor, and they go, listen, you just don't talk to your wife that way. And if you're a 24-year-old, and you've been married for like 12 months or something like that, and you're just like, no, 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 no. That's how you should talk to somebody when they treat you like this. Right? And your mentor goes, no, it's actually not. And you see, what you have to do is they're not going to be able to reason with you. You're angry. You want to be heard. You're not being appreciated. You don't understand why this person's treating you. You don't understand what's wrong with them. You want your mentor to tell them what's wrong with them. And they're being like, listen, if what you want is to be married, to be happy, ultimately to be heard and appreciated yourself, you need to shut your mouth and not talk to another person you claim to love this way. Right? And you see, what you have to do if you're that person, angry as you are, you have to believe them. You have to believe that they've walked this path before. They know what they're talking about. They have felt what you have felt. They have seen this before. They know what they mean. They're from here. And they get it. And what they're telling you, you need to accept. You see, friends, there are a lot of things in life like that. And most of the most important things in life are like that. And you see, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying the foundational truths that you need to know, he's saying, I have to just tell you so that you can know them. And then by them, you can see everything else. If you get some of these things clear, then your reason will start to work properly again. Once you, like, see what your, like, your spouse's or your roommate's made in God's image, once you see what the call of love is, once you understand basic moral principles, you can start to reason better again. You can start to investigate things and things get clearer. By the light, you can see with light. But until you accept these basic foundations that Jesus is testifying, what will happen is you're going to be in darkness and you're going to exert judgment back on him. And you're going to be wrong. And you're going to be caught in darkness And and so what Jesus tries to tell people is he says, listen, this is the defining trial of your life. This question is the defining trial of your life. Whether or not you can accept, he's saying that I'm the light, that I am going to tell you the foundational truth and their meaning, and that by them you can see, and without them you won't be able to see, is the foundational truth, and it will define everything about you. It will define whether or not you will love the truth and live in the truth, and therefore live in the light, but it will also determine whether or not you experience the water of life. And it's terrifying, right? And so they say to Jesus, right, you can't say this. He says, listen, in the previous chapter he said, stop judging by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. And in that case he was talking about how they had interpreted the Bible, And they had used their reason to interpret the Bible, but because their reason was clouded with their self-justification, they had reasoned poorly. And they'd come up with all these rules that weren't actually the rules of God. And then they tried to enforce them on people in judgment in ways that were never intended. And so they were completely wrong, not because they didn't have strong faculties of reason, and not because they couldn't inductively study the scripture scientifically and try to figure out what they said, but because their heart wasn't right. It infected in convoluted their reasoning and their investigation such that they came out with false assumptions and they were so sure of them because they'd used their reason and their powers of investigation. And one of the things I see rampant in our culture among all of us, in the church and outside the church, is we we believe so much in our faculties of reason and what we call science. And we're so sure about what they all mean. And we've pulled them even into our politics, which is why we—how we force other people to do things with power. And we're so sure about it, and you get one foundational thing wrong and your trajectory's a little off and by the time you get to the end, you're so far from the truth and you're so sure about it and you're willing to, as Jesus said, and now you want to kill me. Right? And so Jesus says, in this passage, he says, listen, you guys judge. He, the, he, he's getting more intense now, right? He's like, in the last passage, he says, judge, you're judging by mere appearances. You've got to get past that. And I'm only going to be here a little while, and then I'm not going to be here. And you see how he amps it up in this passage? He says, listen, you're not just judging according to appearances. You're judging according to the flesh. And when I go away, the result of that is you're going to die in your sins. You see how he's like, he's increasing the intensity. He's like, look, you're not listening. You're not listening. And so they, he says, like, you're judging according to the flesh. That is, you, you are in your own head. You don't have these foundational principles right. You've been living in the cosmos, the world that is not conscious of its creator. You've imbibed all of those assumptions. Those assumptions are, you suck them in with your mother's milk. There's so much an absorbed part of you, you don't even know they're there. And then you use them in all of your reasoning and all your investigation. You come up with all these judgments. And then you can tell me what heaven is like, though I am from heaven. You can tell me what the Father is like. He's my Father. You have no idea what you're talking about and you're so sure of yourself right and then he says listen i'm not judging anybody now that's in the present tense right now at this moment i'm not judging you what you see and why is he saying that right he's saying that because these guys are so emotionally reactive they're like well who are you to talk to us to? he's like I'm, bloody, I'm not even judging you this is just testimony I'm just telling you what is the case. I'm not saying yet like you're going to die or God's going to judge you or you're going to be killed. Like there's no implication of any cost to you at all yet. I haven't said anything like that. And you're flipping out. Why? Because they know. You see? And Jesus is doing that intentionally. If he can pull out their reactivity, he can begin to show them where's that coming from? Where's all that emotion, all that anger coming from? I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling you I'm the light of the world. I'm telling you that you can live in the life of God. I'm telling you that you can walk in the light. And they're like, you're terrible. How dare you? You can't say this. How could you even know this? Somebody's like, you guys, I'm not judging anybody. Right? Have you had this happen where you're like just trying to be clear? And somebody's like, you're just, you're judging me so much. There's so much judgment. I feel so much judging. There's just all this judgment, judging, and judgment. And you're like, okay, let's just put aside that you're judging me right now. Okay. There's no sense in pointing out what's true. Um, I'm just, I'm, this is testimony. I'm just telling you something, and I intend it to be for your good. That's literally the opposite of judgment. Literally the opposite. I'm telling you something so that you cannot experience something bad. That's literally what I'm doing. And instead, what you're saying is, I am doing something bad to you. All that is revealing is, You don't want any light shined on you. That's what that's revealing. And you're terrified, and that's why you're so reactive. Does that make sense? And you see, when you feel that, like, you'll feel that. Even, like, you'll read something in the Bible you didn't expect to find there, and you'll know immediately the implications for your life, and it'll be terrifying, and you'll be like, well, I don't think that's right. (laughs) I mean, we do it in the church all the time. Just look at all of our interpretations of the Bible, right? It's like, do you realize how much, like, caring for the poor is talked about in here? It's like a lot, right? I wonder if it's the right proportion in terms of what we do with our time and money. You know what I mean? I mean, do you know how much this talks in here about Bible study? I mean, not very much. I mean, honestly, it doesn't say much about Bible study in here. There's a few few verses, especially for the leaders. They should study the Bible. There's an awful lot in here about caring for the poor directly. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I, I say that because I don't, want, I don't want you to just think in your mind like secular people. Well, they can't see. They don't live by the light. No, no, no. The people Jesus is arguing with are the Jews, right? That's not like these evil people, the Jews. They're like typical humans who are religious toward God. They're our best case scenario, okay? You understand? They're the best case scenario, and they've got it wrong. They believe in God. They believe in the Bible. They're literally remembering everything that God did in their lives— on this week, at the biggest celebration where they're the most emotionally happy, they should be the most open, and they are real upset. And if—listen, you can never expect your secular neighbors to be more honest than you with their own hearts and with God. Right? Okay, let's move on. The third thing is, is that— the light is how we know God and escape judgment. I mean, because think about this. Jesus is really clear about the stakes here. The stakes are really high. Right? Um, one, it's whether or not you get to live in the light. Or whether you get to live in ignorance and in darkness and in the costs of that. Right? Um, if, you, if you don't want the light, you get to live in darkness and in wickedness and in the, the hurt that comes with it. But also you won't know God, right? Jesus says, look, because they're, they're like, well, wait, show, okay, okay. So if there's two witnesses, fine. Where's the other witness? Can you please produce the other witness? And he's like, it's flowing out of me. <laughs> he's like, how can you not see the Father testifying? Everything I do, the Father's testifying. Every truth I tell, every choice I make, every miracle I do, every reminder. Literally right now, he's like, this is in chapter five, right? He says, he says, listen, John testified about me. John the Baptist testified about me. And then he's like, and then the miracles testify about me. And then he says, and you study the scriptures, thinking in the scriptures in the Bible you have life. But it's the scriptures that what? Testify about me. So he's like, I've got John testifying about me. That is somebody with an actual divine experience of revelation saying who I am. I've got the miracles testifying about me. And I've got the Bible testifying about me. He's like, that feels like a lot. And at this moment, He's literally embodying the entire history of the Jewish people spanning like 1,500 years. Every event, pointing here, pointing there, coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, being in the desert, the light of the fire, the water from the rock, the food, manna from heaven. Right? Remember? The the bread of God in chapter 6, right? And at the end of chapter 7, what do they say? He is the prophet. That is the second Moses. He is… He is the baptism to the Red Sea. He is the salvation of slavery to set people free. Just read the very next passage in chapter 8. He is the pillar of the fire in the desert. He is the rock, water out of the rock. He is the second Moses. He is the whole thing. All of it is in him. The scriptures testify to the miracles testifying, to everything he's saying testifies. He, the Father, is with me. And they're like, I don't know, you know? And He's like, what this clarifies is that you don't know God. That's what this clarifies. People do not like hearing that, okay? I've been a pastor just to adults for about 20 years this year, right? 26 to 46. And I have these situations where people are like, well, this is what I'm going to do. We'll talk through it, the wisdom of it. Is it living in the light, you know? And they're like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm like, well, do you belong to Jesus? And they're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I was like, okay. Then you can't do that. And they're like, but I'm, but I'm gone. And I was like, okay. I mean, I'm not going to punch you or anything, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you, if you know God, you're not going to do that. Or if you were to do something like that, it would be out of infirmity or weakness. It would not be a choice. You wouldn't premeditatedly say, I am going to do it.'" There's a lot of room for weakness and failure. But that presumption reveals something about what you say about God. You don't know him. right? So there's, you get to live in darkness and all the, all the costs of that. You don't, you will not know God. Not really. And you will therefore not experience his living water, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and he says this three times, you guys. Okay? He says it three times. He says, you will die in your sins. Okay? Now, some people are like, I knew it. I knew this was a Baptist church, and we were gonna get hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> right? I mean, listen, this this. He says, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is this why we go where he cannot come? He said, so they didn't get it, right? So he continued, and he said, you are from below, and I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. That's what going away means. I told you, that you would die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am the one you will, I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Okay? That's three times. All right? That's important. There's not a lot of things that are said three times, all right? And first, let's notice this. This is a very tame way to refer to damnation. Okay? Like Jesus isn't like whipping out all the like fire and hell and like He doesn't like—I mean, he's just like, look, if you don't know God, you're in your sins. You're not a good person. You don't—you're not a man of truth. You don't live for the truth. You don't live for the will of God. All the things that I've laid out, and I'm showing you that I'm a man of truth, you aren't any of those things. And so like, this idea that like, you don't have a problem is crazy, and so you want to judge me, but I'm telling you, I'm testifying that you could have the light of life. You could have the living water. Anybody who believes in me, he says in chapter 6, right, will have a resurrection that not unto judgment, but unto eternal life. There will be forgiveness, redemption, pardon in God that he will give freely to anyone who asks. He's like, listen, and if you don't get that, the result is you die in your sins. You stay exactly where you are. That's the most terrifying possible thing. You will stay where you are, And the condition of waterlessness and darkness, and ultimately we get to chapter 9, the very next chapter, blindness will only increase until there's nothing left. There's a lot at stake, and so you have to decide, like, well, what are you going to choose, right? And then the last thing is, is that the light is something that you can see if you want to, right? Um, Somebody sent me a, a thing on Calvinism this week, of a fundamentalist Baptist, like, taking it apart, and there's a lot of stuff that was wonky in it, but um, one of the things was, he was saying, and I think this is correct, is if you think your assurance comes from being predestined, you don't really think you have any volitional control in this, right? And maybe you're still going to help me. Who knows, right? Salvation is about whether or not you believe. But here's the problem. One of the problems is is that psychologically speaking, it's kind of like, well, Nick, how do I believe in something I don't believe in. Like, if you're saying this to me and I believe it, like God gives me the grace to believe right now and I believe, or I already believe, okay, then like I believe it and I should like just believe it, right? But like, what if I don't feel like I believe it? Or maybe I believe it kind of, or I think maybe I could believe it, or like maybe it's believable, but I don't say believe it yet. Like, what do I do in all these like hinterlands of belief? Or what if I even don't believe? And the answer is this. Because you're like, it's like you're, like, you're like, it's Jesus, take him or leave him. And it's like, well, sort of, but Jesus is inviting every person to grapple with the light. That's what he's doing. Everybody to grapple with the light and therefore to grapple with darkness. And you can do that without knowing whether or not Jesus, the Christ, rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. You can decide that you're going to grapple with it. Okay, there's a few ways that you can do that. I have a little slide for this, right? One is, is that you can start just— coming to Jesus to understand what he's saying. Right? That's the first step. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe Jesus is true, and maybe he's right that if you actually look at him and listen to him, you would actually begin to see more and then therefore believe more, right? This is what Nicodemus says to the Jewish teachers that don't even want to listen to him. He's like, does our law say that we should condemn somebody before we even see what they're doing and listen to them? Okay? And so if you don't know, if you like haven't studied Jesus' words and actions that way, that's the first step. See if the truth is there. Let me say this. I'm gonna be a little abrasive right now. Church kids are the worst. Okay? Here's why. Not you guys. You guys are too young. But like, when you grow up in the church, right, you have this, you have this problem, because you have all the privilege and benefit of being around God's word, around people who believe in God, around people who tell you what it means to believe in God, and around people who look like they're trying to follow God. And there's a huge heritage in that, an amazing help to you. And also, you have the curse of familiarity, where it's like, it's just this thing that's been going around all since you were a kid. And like, yeah, the Bible. And, yeah, and we, yeah, we pray at meals. And yeah, there's this. And we pray before we go to bed. Yeah, there's probably a God. And it like, becomes this thing. It's amazing to me how you can, as a younger person, go through a whole life in the church and then walk away from your faith. And I talk to these people. I talk to these young people who are like, yeah, I walked away from Jesus because it's so stupid. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, tell me about your, the faith you walked away from. And it like, it sounds like something you could get from like an eight-year-old. You know, it's like, if they learned nothing. And they're like, oh no, I totally understand Christianity. It sucks. And I'm like— you don't know anything about— Okay, i like, okay, tell me the theme of one book of the Bible. Or, all right, um, what comes right after John 3.16? Or, and so on. And it's, it's like— a cow looking at a closed gate. I mean, it's just like no idea. It is, it is amazing how much people can go through church. And some of this is the church's fault, right? Like we teach at such surface levels. We have little sermonettes. And it's like, oh, you know, Jesus thinks you're fantastic. And just like, you're going to have a great week and just be nice to people. And we, we, we preach these sermons with no theology, no structure, no insight into our own psychology and relating to God or any of that stuff. And then we go out into a more complicated world where our faith is not complexified enough to even work. And like, it's partly our fault. It's partly your fault because you weren't really listening. And you wouldn't say you did, but if Nicodemus was hanging out with you, he might be like, is it right for you to condemn one without really hearing him and without really looking into what he was doing? Right? The, The second thing is that you could try to be a man or woman of truth. Right? Take Jesus' challenge. In these two chapters, Jesus says that a man of truth is somebody who submits themselves to the will of God. And if you don't believe in God yet, the God of the Bible claims to be ultimately good. And in him there's no evil at all, and there are no lies. So even if before you believed in God, you were willing to even see what that meant, that would mean you would commit yourself completely to the truth, completely to the truth about yourself, that is humility, and completely to what is good as best as you understood it, in every circumstance, in every possible way, and that you would commit yourself to never do what your conscience condemned, and to always do what you believe was right, and to live as though you were sent to this life, not just wandering through it for yourself. You would have purpose. Now, you would embrace that. Because if there is a God, and if you have a purpose, and if there is meaning, then at least that is probably true. And you could try to live that way. And what you would find if you try to live that way is that there is a great beauty in those things. And that you stink at them beyond what you could possibly imagine. If you did the humility part, you would realize the gap between the man of truth that Jesus is and your attempt at being a man or a woman of truth is so big that it's terrifying. You would be kind of discouraged about where you're at, and you would realize that you would do anything, if you're really seeking nobility, to be brought up somehow to the nobility of the beauty of the goodness of God in your life in the land of the living. And you would do anything to be helped. And then you might recognize the greatness of Jesus and your need of him, and then why he says these things. And then all of a sudden, at one moment in time, they might make perfect sense. Right? The third thing is, is that you can follow the teachings of Jesus and see what they reveal. One of the things that Jesus says in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is this. Most of the truths I'm trying to teach you, you will never understand until you do them. Why? Because our protective faculties are of reason and investigation. They're our cognitive faculties. or our abstract faculties, right? So if I say, you're a bad person. If I took anybody from the crowd and I pulled you up here and I said, you're a bad person, right? Your immediate reactive idea would be like, no, I'm not. I'm a good person. And you have amazing arguments. You would give me rational arguments for why you're a good person. And you would give me examples of why you're a good person. And you would, in a very logical way, very conveniently, leave out, leave out a lot of things or things you don't even want to know about yourself. And you'd make a compelling case you know? And you see, what Jesus is saying is he's saying only doing the acts of holiness will uh, will put you in a situation which will cause you to really begin to understand what I'm trying to tell you. When you actually try to love somebody else selflessly— and really be humble, and really listen to them rather than just demand from them, and treat them as a subjective other person who is made made the image of God rather than an object to get out of them what you want. And you actually start to try to like live in that place and like do what Jesus said, and you realize how hard it is, and then you realize it's hard because you don't— you're not that kind of person. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. I'm, See, that, that only happens in experience. That's why God wants most of you to get married, you know, and to have children, and to work jobs, and to love your neighbor. Those very basic things. And to be part of a church with a bunch of idiots like us, right? It's like those sorts of things put you in situations where light shines on some things in your life that your rational, creative mind would always block. Right? And then I would say, ask for God's help with these. Okay, I got to keep moving because I have one more thing I want to say. I, one of the things I want you to say is, even though this is a place where Jesus is very clear about damnation, about dying in your sins, it's pretty aggressive. You don't know God. You're gonna, you're gonna die in darkness, and you're gonna, you're gonna die in your sins. Remember, what's the whole point of this? What is this about? Is this about hell? Is this about death? Is this about God getting you back for what you did to him? How do we start? It starts with Jesus standing under these huge torches in the happiest day of the Jewish year and saying, I I am the light of the world. Anybody who comes to me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Amen. You see, Jesus is not some SWAT team with a floodlight to blare the light in your face so that they can shoot you better. Right? Jesus is like a searchlight. And yeah, is it a spotlight? Is it going to spotlight on you and be like, oh, this is embarrassing and humiliating? Yes. But the point of that spotlight is that it trails through the air to a lighthouse, which is where you need to go. It's the place of your salvation and rescue and redemption. And Jesus is just as hard on you as he has to be to get you to recognize this. Right? So in, so in um, 826, he says this, right? He says, I have much to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, I will tell the world. Right? That sounds like a kind of like, that sounds like word soup to me, right? But like, no, look what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you guys, you're being, you're being so resistive to me, so reactive, so angry, so unwilling to believe. But listen, if I just said whatever I wanted, if I wasn't a man of truth, Jesus is saying, I could give you a little piece of my mind. You understand? I have a lot to say about you. <laughs> I got a lot of words in here about what I could say about you and— a good portion of it would be in judgment of you. It would be a damnation. It would be what you deserve and what you're going to get. And he said, "But I'm sent from the Father, and my Father is what? True. You see how he just introduced a third meaning of truth there. It's not just validity. It's not just certainty or accuracy. Now it means, no matter how bad you are, he's not going to get off what he's about." God is true to the truth and true to himself in the truth. No matter what you do, he's going to stay laser focused on, I'm inviting you to the light. Say whatever you want. Attack me however you want. I'm inviting you to the light. I'm inviting you to the life. I'm inviting you to salvation and redemption and care and life and forgiveness and hope and trust. I'm inviting you to everything I made you for. I'm inviting you out of sin and death to life, to the water of life. To the celebration of the light of God. Where you get to play with fire if you want, all night long. I'm going to invite you to the greatest joy my people can create together in my house. Right? And you see this, right? He tells them they're going to die in their sins because they need to hear it because they're not listening. You can see this in when he talks to the woman on the well, right? She's not really listening until he says, you've had five husbands and you're living with some dude. And then he doesn't push it further than that. He goes as, as hard as he needs to, but he stays laser focused because his father is true. And he talks to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like kind of hoity-toity. And, and Jesus says a couple things, a little bit sarcastic. Oh, you seem to know everything, do you? Well, here's what you don't know, right? And it, like, it cuts Nicodemus in the heart such that by chapter 7, he says, look, we don't condemn—we pe- should not condemn people. We don't hear and see what they're about. See, he's been changed because Jesus—he poked at him, but only enough because he's a searchlight. He's not a floodlight. He's not trying to take you out with the light. He's not just trying to humiliate you by shining the light of truth. It's a searchlight to bring you home. So believe. Believe again. Believe against the darkness in your life. Or take the next step to walking in the light and see if God, through that honesty and humility, what you know is good, See if through that he creates the kind of belief and faith that will transform you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, um, it's hard to say everything every week. I pray that you would utilize what we say, what we've said today, what this this text says, and help us to know and believe you. And we pray that in these next moments where we celebrate communion together that we would do it with that kind of faith, that desire for the light, coming to you to drink the living water by recognizing your body and blood in your crucifixion and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.